Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Which is, of course, Danish for Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. It's my Dutch accent. Yeah, that's your, that's absolutely your best one ever. Even though it's Danish, that doesn't matter. That, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the six you've done, that's the one. I think um, we should open a language school. Well, if maybe. this history thing doesn't pan out for you, James. <laughs> yeah, all right. Quickly do my TEFL course. Um, um, what have you got? This is well, our, our I've last got, one. I've got one of my my real personal favourites today. I've got One Man's Window by Dennis Barnum, which again is another of those ones that's been re-released as something like Spitfire Pilot over Malta or something. Yeah, yeah really crap. But 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 One Man's Window is much better. Um, and this is a fantastic book. It's based on his diary, which um, actually I went I went over there in um, I think it's 2011 or 12 or something like that, making a film about Malta in the war, and, and his son Ollie, who I know pretty well, um, and as a good friend. Ollie gave me the original diary to take back for the first time since 1942 to kind of have as a kind of prop when we were filming. Well, that's not one to drop in the bath. Well, no, it absolutely isn't. Um, And the interesting thing about it is that Dennis was a brilliant, brilliant artist as well as a very, very good writer. And um, so his diary is filled with little doodles and sketches and, and you know, what you get from a lot of the pictures, particularly of sort of, you know, Junkers 88s attacking Luca and things like that. But um, 
you get a sort of sense of movement and energy that you just don't get from a black and white photograph, interestingly. So they're incredibly vivid. But what he is particularly brilliant about is, funny enough, a bit like Joseph Heller, of just getting the absolute insanity of war. Yeah. He gets across very, very well. You know, he's just totally discombobulated by, by getting to this total madhouse where everything that he thought was kind of normal in life and squadron life back in England is just completely thrown out of the water by by um, the fact that it's so brutal on Malta. There's yeah. just nothing. It's really hot. There's mozzies everywhere. There's just sort of casual attitude to violence and brutality is just, you know, absolutely plain for all to see. Um, and everyone's become completely inured to just how sort of completely ghastly it is on, on Malta. But where he's really, really good is describing aerial fighting and dogfights. And it's just some of the most sensational air fighting sequences ever and that's one of the things I'm going to be reading in a minute brilliant so this first extract from one man's window comes um, as Dennis Barnum is flying along with another 47 Spitfires from the USS Wasp an aircraft carrier and they're flying from the mouth of the Mediterranean a long way um, across the Mediterranean uh, west to east to Malta uh, and it is, I think, if I remember rightly, the 20th of April, 1942. So is the absolute height of the Blitz of Malta. We have been flying through turquoise and silver space for four hours with the long Mediterranean unwinding below us. For a time after climbing to 10,000 feet, the russet-coloured mountains of Algiers accompanied us, but finally they retreated into the haze. The sun, mounting higher, has been a blinding light in our eyes. I watched its reflection glistening in the ruffled surface of the sea. With nothing else to look at, I watched the strange patterns blown on the seascape by the wind, but then, about an hour ago, a sheet of white cloud extending below us obliterated the ocean. Because it hid some lumps of rock that should have been our first navigational check, we didn't know we were off course. The wind must have blown us a hundred miles from our estimated position, for as the cloud started to break up, the CO discovered that he was about to steer us along the north coast of German-held Sicily. He made a radio call to Malta for a course to steer, but it must have been an enemy voice, loud and jeering, that answered. Glancing southwards, in which direction we had been ordered to fly, I saw the clouds draw back like a curtain to reveal an island, a brown conical hill, floating innocently on the blue water. It was Pantelleria, an enemy fighter base. That was a few moments ago. We had been flying onwards in a south-easterly direction with our fuel levels sinking lower and lower, with a thousand miles of sea between us and Egypt. And I can believe the stories that pilots, flying this route by night, have been lured onto enemy aerodromes so that their transport machines and crews have been captured. The clouds have disappeared, empty sea stretches in all directions, but undoubtedly the most vivid impression made upon me by this flight has been caused by the metal bottle in my dinghy pack upon which I am sitting. I am obviously developing a well of a bruise, for no matter how I squirm and wriggle in this tiny cockpit, I can't get comfortable. A disturbance of colour on the horizon is growing steadily nearer. From navigational logic, it is just where I expected it to be. We're changing formation. Each section of four aircraft has now become a tightly packed arrowhead. As the apex of the left-hand arrow, my outstretched elliptical wings are overlapped by other wings, for three profile spitfires are sliding downwards towards me. Two islands, like two autumn leaves floating on the water, grow larger and larger. The steep cliffs of the smaller Anira, which must be Gozo with Malta lying beyond it, rush towards us. White walls crinkle a hilltop. The small fields are yellow. Blue water in front of my propeller, and as we cross the channel between the two islands, I can see the waves breaking on the sunlit rocks ahead. 
Now we are leaping inland over the island of Malta. All balsam aircraft, pancake as quickly as you can. That must be the controller. Damn it. I would have liked to have looked around our new home, for it is beautiful. We are passing over domes and towers, white blocks of houses huddled into villages. Baroque churches all yellow and white against the rim of blue sea in the distance. Jigsaw patterns of white walls, a few stunted trees, a craggy valley. Now an aerodrome sweeps beneath our wings. That would be Tikali. I beckon my flanking Spitfire still closer. I want to make the people down there feel proud of their reinforcements. We bounce with the speed of our dive as another aerodrome with runways swings into view. This must be Luca, to which we have been detailed, so I give the order. Yellow four, break. Yellow section, break. The pale undersides of my Spitfires leap sideways as I search the air for the landing queue. I'm approaching some steep hills, clustered thick with buildings that protrude into the sea. It's a harbour, and there's a ship down there, low in the water, smoke coming from it. Peering down on top of its four shortened black masts, I look deep into its splintered hold. Tiny flames are dancing in it. It's blackened with fire. Sweeping back in the direction of the aerodrome, I glimpse a strange red cloud sloping up the sky. Can't stop to wonder what it is, because it is difficult to pick up the spitfires in the landing queue. I can see their shadows flickering up and down over the hills and valleys. I count them as one by one they settle on the runway. My turn next. Reducing speed, I slide back the perspex hood, lower the wheels and finally put down the flaps. The tilted runway rushing forward seems to engulf me. I level out gently and drop onto the careering dust and stones. Leaving the glaring sunlight, it is into pitch blackness that we feel our way down the steep steps, first to the left, then to the right. Here the narrow passage slopes straight down into solid rock for several fumbling paces towards a single electric light bulb. Still sloping the passage zigzags again, but it is better lit and refreshingly cool and damp. We pass batteries and niches and hear the whine of a transmitter. Further down we pass an officer and some airmen working on a typewriter's. Finally we enter a level cavern with grimy airmen seated on benches either side of it. An outpost of England, for in the far corner next to a door marked Strictly Private, Authorised Persons Only, there is an airman brewing tea. I never expected to undergo our first Malta air raid in a place such as this, Station HQ, referred to by the old hands as G Shelter. I thought we would be flying, yet here we seat ourselves on vacant benches, experiencing the earthquake underground. Trying to balance my alarm at the unusual noises, I am watching the pictures of undressed pin-up girls glued to the rock above the airmen's heads. For as the rock quivers, so these girls dance for us. The airmen are staring at me, so I stare back at the airmen. Every time the cavern gives a convulsive shudder, they grin at our bewilderment. It was airmen like these who welcomed me at the end of my landing run about an hour ago. One leaped up beside my cockpit, shoved a happy sunburnt face close to my helmeted ear and yelled something. I watched the ginger whiskers around the sides of his chin and the silent movement of his cracked lips, but after being wedded to a roaring engine for hours, I couldn't hear what he or the others who gathered around were saying. I took my time in climbing out, and gradually the shrill singing in my ears died down. "'You've just missed the nine o'clock race, sir,' said one. "'We had a hundred bombers over here a few minutes ago,' added another. I smiled back at them, but I wondered what it would be like to have a hundred bombers overhead, when one's own aerodrome is the target.' The red cloud leaning up the sky must have been bomb dust. I should have guessed. The airman opened up the gun panels of the wings of my Spitfire with a bayonet. I was staring with astonishment at the stuff I had been carrying in my aircraft. Spanners, screwdriver, mosquito nets, long cellophane cartons of camel cigarettes, and not many bullets. Then a dilapidated bus filled with the other pilots drew up to collect me. We set off with a crash of gears accelerating down a narrow roadway between high stone walls. The airman driver braked fiercely. 
We shot off our seats into a tumble of luggage. As he shrugged his shoulders, I saw that the road was blocked by a mountainous heap of rubble. Don't they even know the way around their own aerodrome? I asked myself, but as the bus backed violently in the direction we had come from, I remembered the air raid. We finally arrived at the officers' mess, the six officers' mess, we were told, the other five having been flattened one by one. We gathered on the carpeted floor of the single room, the dreaded Hugh and Ken talking with the CEO, with Pancho and quiet Cyril standing on the edge of the group. I watched Max and Scotty investigate the rickety furniture, then look out through the glassless windows, but, thirsty after our long flight, we were soon consuming drinks from the angled bar that crossed one corner of the room. We were chatting merrily when the air raid siren screamed. My heart seemed to rise up inside me. I looked at the older inhabitants, lounging back in their armchairs, but they went on reading their papers. I was glad when a guide led us out from the porch and up the road. On our left, spilled from crevices between tumbled rectangular blocks of heavy stone, were tiny fragments of crushed glass. They glittered in the rubble like jewels. Our guide gestured towards the heap with a palm of his hand uppermost, as if throwing something away. Doc O'Dowd's sick quarters, he explained. He's third sick quarters this week. I heard the murmur of approaching engines, but the CO and the guide continued to lead our party over the potholes. The CO is a big man, very tall, very broad. I'm six foot and I look up to him. He's the kind of man who holds his head high and only looks down with his eyes. Well, there he was, glimpsing up at the Messerschmitt 109s which were turning in pairs over the aerodrome. Ugh, the Battle of Brit all over again, he proclaimed. I wanted to run, but I strode alongside him, a flight lieutenant apparently in no hurry. My heart was beating wildly as I listened to the other pilots who made taunting remarks about the circling Luftwaffe. At last, and with considerable relief, I saw we were approaching a shelter. But we passed it. We went on past crumbled buildings. I looked at the heavy stone blocks which had crushed black iron bedsteads into wriggling concertina shapes. I looked at unrecognisable wooden structures which had been wrenched into heaps of splinters. As we walked slowly up the hill, more and more 109s arrived in the sky. Feeling that something was about to happen, I put on my tin hat. Oh, Dennis, laughed the CEO. You do look a sight in that. I smiled. I felt most indignant. I kept it on. As we continued, I noticed an airman digging close beside a tiny red flag hammered into the side of the road. I turned to our guide for an explanation. He's digging for an unexploded bomb. Having read of such heroes during the blitzes in England, I stared at this airman by himself, just digging. I was secretly pleased when he smiled back at me, but at that moment, from the top of a flat roof structure like a tall concrete garage ahead of us, a white light shot up and a red flag was hoisted. The take cover signal, gasped our guide out of breath as we ran. At the side of the concrete structure was a grave of rubble and the entrance to G shelter was the end of this heap. We entered the narrow doorway, filed down the steps into the dark, and here we are. The door at the end of the cavern opens and the aerodrome controller leans round it. Sixty bombers diving on Takali. Why not go up and watch the fun? Back up the steps we climb. German planes, which I recognise as Junkers 88 twin-engine bombers, are streaming down the sky in the distance. Black bomb bursts gush back from the ground, huge globules of smoke, heavy and bubbling, some of them rolling off long stalks like mushrooms. Layers of them brood grotesquely over the network of white walls, over villages that lie scattered over the scene like dice, monstrous clouds rising higher and higher. It is quickly over. The German planes have disappeared behind the curtain of destruction. The bomb smoke slowly clears, leaving a more flimsy veil of red dust. I can see many black pinpoints, each with tall streamers of smoke spurting high into the sky. Our new Spitfire's burning on the ground, 
states an experienced irk at my elbow. This second section is Dennis's first time in combat over Malta. I think it's the next day. Um, and he asks the CEO, Jumbo Gracie, what the tactics are. Uh, and Gracie gives him pretty short shrift and just says, tactics, there aren't any tactics, just follow me, basically. Uh, but anyway, they've, um, they're, they're taking off. So here we are. The CO's Spitfire is passing most discreetly on the other side of the runway, tail up for takeoff. At last, aware of the general direction of the dust clouds, I swing round and open the throttle wide, gathering speed more and more quickly and sweeping into the air. Wheels up and a steep turn to see where the others have got to. The landscape floods wide around me. Beautiful, beautiful to see the hills and rooftops and churches again. But this is war. Down there the sirens must be wailing. We are climbing higher into the rusty purple void. In all this haze... I can't see the island or the sea, only the two spitfires ahead of me and the glaring cyclopean eye of the sun staring down at us. Fifteen thousand feet, still in haze, Gracie turning left. I follow in a long stern chase as we dive back in the direction we've come from. I stare through the windscreen at Gracie's tiny spitfire, closely followed by the COs, both turning slightly right in the distance. In front of the two retreating planes, a faint brown trace of the island, with bursting anti-aircraft shells, is looming towards us. Gracie steepens his dive, continues turning. We're plunging vertically, but I can see no enemy planes. There they are. JU-88s. Top plan view. Five, seven, ten, twenty, thirty. No time to count. Still more appear, all sweeping closer. All sizes extending in depth downwards like fishes in a tank, some very close, some far away below take one near the bottom. My Spitfire shudders as I fire two bursts of cannon into a cluster of bombers that get in the way. May have hit one. Can't stop to look. My target is wheeling nicely into position. Ah! A huge part of a Ju-88 nose and engines flashes out from under my left wing. Must have been right on top of him. Gone now. Easing gently out of my dive, watching my graceful targets flying backwards towards me, larger and larger in my gun sight. Quick search in all directions. Lots of 88s but no enemy fighters. Target's wings overlapping with my windscreen. I fire. A flash and a burst of smoke from his port engine. He rears up in front of me, turning steep left. Dash the man. Deflection inside his turn. Can only just do it. Fire again. He's swerving to the right. Try for his starboard engine. Fire again and again. Black smoke puffs on my left wing. Balls of orange fire flashing past my cockpit, crackling in my ears. I plunge left, looking back over my left shoulder. For who the hell's hitting me? Nothing there. Just an 88 hanging behind my tail can't be him. Swerve back again. My own 88 has drawn away a bit, a pretty thing splaying two plumes of smoke that widen as they sweep back towards me. Very pale machine and very close to the water. I wonder if it's going to crash. 109s! Two head-on views, diving from my left, blinking with light. Curling blue tracers strand about me as I turn towards them. A third got my sight on him for an instant before he went under my nose. Still turning hard left. My helmet's too big for me. Turn pressure pulls it over my eyes. Can't see. Stupid. Push it up again. Straighten out. That's better. Two more 109s. From the right this time. Turning towards them. Curled down on the last one. Can't turn sharply enough. Damn the helmet. Another 109 below me. Drop onto its tail. I'll get him all right. A gigantic shape, all rivets and oil streaks. The underside of a Messerschmitt blots out the sky. Gone. But I'm still on a 109's tail. It's right there in front of me, pointing very slightly downwards. My aircraft shudders and shudders and shudders and shudders as I pour bullets and shells into it. It bursts with black smoke and topples over sideways. More 109s on the right. Turn. My Spitfire vibrates violently and the sea changes place of the sky. I'm spinning. Opposite rudder and stick forwards. I'm level again. Two more from the right. 
Once again, my Spitfire flicks upside down. Steep cliffs and yellow ground hang above my head, with black clouds among the buildings there. Bombs bursting? Corrective action was immediate, for I am the right way up once more. Bang! Explosion from my engine, smoke bursting back into the cockpit. Upside down, spinning again, cliffs very close, controls don't answer, all gone slack. Can't stop spinning, Spitfire burning, out of control, too low to bail out? Might just make it, bail out quickly. But everything is going so slowly, oh, so slowly. I can see my right hand coming up gradually towards my helmet to throw it off. I can see my left hand in front of my face, trying to unfasten my oxygen mask, which is clamped tightly over my nose and mouth. I watch my fumbling fingers trying and trying and trying again to find out where the metal hook is placed. I seem to be slowly saying to myself, oh, so very slowly, you'll have to hurry up, Dennis, old chap, there's so very, very little time. But it's no good. I just can't undo all these pipes and wires. I'm too low now. No hope now. Can't avoid it. Gonna be killed. The scene is strangely peaceful, for unconcerned and apparently unimplicated, I'm outside my aeroplane, looking back at my body. In front of me is the wingtip, but my attention is drawn back along the upper surface of the wing, back over the painted roundel to the wing route where the light is shining. Above the wing route is the cockpit. Within the perspex canopy, I can see my own helmeted head with my arms encircling it in such a strange manner. I'm so interested in watching my body over there that I have but a faint impression of the aeroplane's long nose trailing horizontal smoke against a background of dark sea. Pressure! Controls do respond. Hope! Not going to be killed after all. Smoke's not bad. 109s? Pretend I'm crashing. Might leave me alone. Diving, deliberately lurching down, down, down to white surf at the foot of the cliffs. Rolling sideways, I look back at the enemy planes. 109s high up behind me, watching and I hope, convinced by my trick. Cliffs towering above me, climb quickly, sweeping upwards over the cliff brink. The molten landscape reappears. Another huge burst of smoke from the engine. Smoke now pouring from the cowling covers just in front of my windscreen. Throttle dead, engine dead. 109s after me. Ignore them, got to put this plane down somewhere. But where? Where? Sinking, I drop my left wing. Patterns of walls. Feels much too small. I'd crash horribly. Searching desperately, I drop the right wing. Worn tracks where aircraft have taken off. An aerodrome! Turning and sinking, I'm much too close to it. Side-slipping with stick fully back. Full top rudder and the wings and body shuddering and shaking. The brittle skeletons of what must have once been huge hangars rush up to meet me. I'm landing downwind, overshooting. Far walls will break me to bits. No wheels then. Belly landing. Turning over the broken hangar, I tighten up the straps. Don't want to bash my brains on the gun sight, but floating, still floating. Aerodrome shrinking, walls coming, rudder away from that bomb hole. Stick back, 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 crump. Nose has dropped. I'm tossed forward, but held in straps. Tail high in the air. I'm hanging in the straps, but now, as the tail drops and we revert to the horizontal in a cloud of dust. What relief. I've done it. I'm down safely. Reaching towards me, zigzag across the ground, dust spurts, clattering machine guns, thump, 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 thump of 109 cannons, out of the cockpit, onto the wing I run, but RT wires attached to my helmet head, tug at me, dragging me back. I wrench off the accursed helmet and run, run for the nearest bond hole, all broken white rock, my flying suit black, trying to be invisible, I lie panting, pressing myself down, waiting for the thud of bullets. I waited and waited. The silence was uncanny. Finally, I looked up. It was difficult to believe it, but the 109s had gone. The ambulance sped out towards me. Group Captain Thomas, the officer commanding this aerodrome at how far, came out in his car and together we examined the bullet holes in my smoking spitfire. The group captain has now brought me to sick quarters. Here, with the spewed bomb rubble beside us, brilliant white, sunlit against the velvet blue, in silence, for the bomb rumble in the distance seems utterly remote, I am at peace. I am drinking a long draught of clear, sparkling water. 
As I drink, I notice through the bottom of the glass a low wall with figures behind it. As I lower the glass, I see it as a group of Maltese peasants watching at us intently. Thanking the group captain, I'm clambering out of my black flying suit. I'm surprised to see my own knees reappearing, one by one at the end of my khaki shorts. A tall flight lieutenant, describing how the 14 or 20 109s against which I had fought followed me in, shakes me by the hand. I've never seen flick rolls used in combat before, he tells me. Alas, I reply, they were unintentional spins. The Maltese peasants are coming down the road towards us. As they pass, the nearest, a very fat woman, looks into my face with searching eyes, holds my elbow and presses something into my hand. I smile, but I don't know what to say to her. As she moves on, I look down. It's a small rectangular card, worn and rubbed. Her prayer card, marked with a little cross, and the words... Verbum Dei Caro Factum Est. I look back to thank her, but she is gone. Now the return to Luca. After collecting my tin hat and sketching things and apologising to the airmen, whom we found watching the sky for my returning Spitfire, telling them it would not come back, I follow Group Captain Thomas, who has kindly driven me here, steeply down into G-Shelter Cavern. Gracie stares at me angrily. So you're alive, are you, you? He says, you nearly pranged us both at take-off. I stare back at him. Of course I'm alive. And the takeoff is irrelevant to argue about that. Angry at such a welcome, I retreat back up the stone steps. Pancho, Max, Scotty, Cyril, Hugh, and the rest of the pilots of our squadron gather round me in the sunlight. They're telling me how Gracie returned from the action. Your CO's had it. Barnum's dead too. I damaged two eighty-eights, was all that he said. Isn't the CO back? I asked in alarm. No, they replied. He's missing. This moment is final, ruthless, inevitable dead. I look round at the sunlit hills which we have trodden for just over 24 hours. Cracky stuff, James. Thank you. Ah, my pleasure. That's it. That's all 12 done. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our 12 extracts of Christmas. We couldn't think of a snappier title. Um, uh, (laughs) That's pretty rubbish, isn't it? um, We will, uh, I think, uh, we'll be back next Tuesday. And next Tuesday we'll also, we'll tell you what those books were. So that in case you missed any of the titles as we went. Although you could, I mean, it's probably there on your iPad or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. How do podcasts work? No one's ever explained it to me. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, we'll repeat it. That's the bottom line. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, it's like a, it's like a. There'll be a blog. We'll do a blog. Don't worry. We'll do a blog with the titles and what the, um, what these books cost now. Some of them are like one p, and some of them are unobtainable. No, you can always get them. You can always find abbooks.com. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Um, it's a happy new year from me, Al Murray. And it's Happy New Year from me, James Holland, too. Cheerio for now. Bye-bye.